read uh, this morning from, from Matthew, the 28th chapter, and I'm going to read in verse 1. I'll start in verse 1, and I'm going to read through. Okay. Matthew 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, remember the Sabbath where the Jews would worship was on the last day of the week which was a Saturday. That's why the Bible teaches us that we as the church meet. We meet with the risen Christ who established his church, and that's the first day of the week. So Sunday is the first day of the week. So in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. This is the ref he is reflecting the glory of his creator in the fact of him being a creation. And it says in verse 4, And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became his dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Notice he didn't address the men, he's addressing the woman, that were in that had received Christ as their Savior. This is the message, and this is what it says: Fear not, you fear. Boy, we, I just believe God wants us to get into, uh, uh, just into a lot of truth about fear and love. Fear not, you. Very personal this morning. God would speak to us this morning and say, I don't want you. Who is in my son to fear? For I know, she's, she's, he's saying, the angel, the messenger, saying to the woman, For I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. Notice that he's not here, meaning he is not a dead Christ. He's not dead, he's living. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There will you see him. Lo, I have told you. You wouldn't believe the scriptures that go into this that make up the whole scene. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But in verse 8 it says, And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with an a reverence and an awe that brought in great joy. And did run, did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. Boy, what a picture. And that's what he's doing. He's going to meet us this morning, not as a dead Christ. Not someone that's held in the tomb. Not that it's over for us like the lies of the atmosphere. They came and beheld him. They came and held him by the feet, those precious feet that went, went to Calvary, dealt with every fear and did away with it in his love. In 1 John 4, 18, they came and they worshiped him. They followed his feet, those precious feet that walked where they couldn't, that, that, would that his precious feet would carry them in John 21 and verse 18, where none of us could go unless we were carried. They, they held him by the feet, and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, and he speaks this to us, and he wants to speak this to us today, stop 
being afraid. Be not afraid. Now, go tell my brethren that they're to go into Galilee and there they will see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, those that were watching, came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say this, that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and take care of you. We'll take care of you, secure you. So they took the money and did as they were as they were taught. Notice that? Who was teaching them? Who teaches us to live in fear? To try and secure us? To try and convince us that, that yes, we're born again, we're going to heaven, but everything else about us here is dead. Everything else is dead. All those promises, all those truths that he gave us in Numbers 23 and verse 19, and Titus 1, 2, and Hebrews 6, 18, which is impossible for God to lie, but we know in John 8, verse 44, the father of all lies is him who wants to teach us to live in fear. See, we're going to be taught to live in his love through the light of the scriptures, and we don't mix anything with that, or we're going to be taught to live in fear. And that's him, the enemy, Satan, over the world system, where he keeps them deceived in Revelations 12, 9, and he seeks to accuse us, and by accusing us truthfully in Revelations 12, 10, he's accusing, he's trying to accuse God. He's accusing God with a lie, of course, and tries to accuse us as part of it. So they took the money and they did as they were taught in in. Matthew 28, verse 15, and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And I'm saying, right to this day, the Jewish nation, those that aren't born again, those that in, in, since, since the Pentecost, the resurrection of Christ and the formation of the church in Acts, the second chapter, to this day, the Jews are still at the wailing wall waiting for the Messiah to come back. Hasn't come yet. Hasn't come yet. And so, this is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Jesus was saying that, but not only until this day, to this day, right now. Right now. Verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Notice, God appoints us to where we're to go to meet him. There's an appointed place where we're to go to meet him, where we're to be taught with him. When we go to the place that God has appointed for us to meet him, that's the place that he will teach us. And verse 17, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you, 
Therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. Again, we need to know the difference between world, what the earth is, and age, a particular time period. And this word here, obviously, is age. Now, notice that Jesus rose from the dead. He did exactly what he said he would do. The work is finished in John 19, verse 30. God has finished the work, and what he finished is done. We're done in him, every single thing about us. So we have the answer, and the answer is on God's part, and it had to be because he would be the only one that could answer that, and that answer was his son. We can trust him because of that. Maybe we're waiting for certain things, and we need to wait for his timing. Read Daniel, the 10th chapter, in those first 13 verses, because there's spiritual warfare. God has given us promises. He's told us things. He can't lie. And the answer may long be delayed. How long was the answer delayed that he gave uh, and, and spoke for Adam and Eve in their, in, in their fallen state, but he spoke it to the, who would be the Christ who would put on humanity in Genesis 3 and verse 15. How long did she wait? Even in Genesis 4.1, she said, I got a man from the Lord, Eve. She was expecting it right then because God gave her the answer. But even though it was long delayed, did it stop? Did it inhibit God, the eternal mind of God being worked out in eternity? No, 4,000 years later, Jesus came as we see in Galatians 4, in verse 4, in Luke 1, in verse 35. But here, though the answer may be long delayed, the answer is already finished. <laughs> He's already finished it. And so, what, what is that? Did, did God raise Jesus from the dead? Then that's the, that's the answer that we have. And did he set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies? In Ephesians, the first chapter, the second chapter, in Psalm 110, verse 1, and on and on. Has that already happened? Has God risen him from the dead? Has he set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principalities and powers and rulers, the darkness of this spiritual age, wickedness in the heights? Has he done that? He has. He's done that. And with all authority given to him, he's given it to him in heaven. And how far is the heaven above the earth? And where are we? We're on the earth. How far then are we above everything on this earth in him? As the answer. Now, those that were functioning, those that were functioning against him under the prince and power of the air, against Satan, against what Christ had accomplished, through uh, what his father had accomplished through Christ in being one, did Jesus Christ go down to the depths of, of humility further than any human being could ever go? And he did. He went down to the depths. And from that point, everything is changed. All is changed. Everything about you and I is changed. Everything already. We already have the answer. Christ above everything. We're on this earth Answers may be delayed, but they're not true. They're true. They're finished. Everything about us. And either we function in love through the light of the scriptures, 
can't be any love without the light of the scriptures. It can't be God without the light of the scriptures. Or we function under the prince and power of the air. We function in absolute fear. And there's no fear in God. There's no fear in love. Because in 1 John 4, 17, as he is, so are we in this, this, this world, this evil world system right now, which in 1 John 5, 18, the wicked one does not touch us. He could touch Job's body. He could do everything. He could not touch his dependence on Christ. That's what he tries to get us away from. The minute we stop being dependent on him, the minute we think that we can take the scriptures apart from Christ and reliance on him and function, that's the second we already are functioning in fear. But yet there is none. There isn't any. They were operating in fear. The, the enemy was causing these unsaved chief priests and elders and these watchers, these spies that Satan had in his service to bring about his lie. Of course, in John 8, verse 44, he's the father of all lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. There's no truth in him. He abode not in the truth. He, he didn't. He can't from now on. And uh, he's, his, his future, his present and his future settled much as yours and I is above him. So, he's the answer. He's the answer. Now, these women were following him. And they, and they watched the horror of the cross. They saw him die on the cross. Did all their dreams, their hopes, their plan, everything about them die with Jesus? Is he still in the tomb? Because if he is, in our experience, there's going to be nothing but fear. Nothing but fear. There's hours, there's moments of time when the enemy would come in and through the projection of fear to tell us that all seems lost right now. Yes, you're born again. Yes, you're saved. But all seems lost right now. Well, it's very interesting. Even Joseph, this man that gave Jesus his tomb, in that particular hour, when all seemed lost, even to these precious women, they forgot everything that Jesus had told them in John eleven twenty five and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> he that believes in me, uh, though he die, he will live. He won't stay in death. He won't stay separated from me. And that's what fear does. It separates us from the love of God when we forget or we put aside the light and revelation of those scriptures and they're pure in themselves, and we keep ourselves pure in Titus 1 and verse 15, so that we don't begin to function in a defiled conscience based upon a lie. So, but here, Joseph openly joins the disciples. Do you know who we're joined to? We are joined to a crucified master. We're crucified him. Where we are right now, this world crucified him. But is he a risen? Is he a, cruci a crucified and risen master? He never would have risen if he wasn't crucified. If he wasn't crucified, he never would have risen. And so we see Joseph there. He goes and he, he pleads with Pilate for the body of Jesus. He takes it and he puts it in a new tomb. Why? Because this death is different than all deaths. The death of Christ is different than all other deaths. It's just very different. 
Why? Because his death is that death that does away with all other deaths. Romans 6, 9, he that dies once dies no more. Ecclesiastes 7, 1, the day of one's death for those that are in Christ, not in the negative sense, but the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. As we were born with that sin nature in, in Psalm 51 and verses 4 and 5 and Psalm 58 and verse 3. But thank God it's that death that dispels all other death. His and his only. And, and he had to have a new tomb. And in, the, in this sense, it was fulfilling the Psalm uh, 16 verses 10 and 11 that God would not allow his body to see corruption. He was put in a new tomb. Okay? And boy, when we don't mix anything with this new risen life, there's nothing that's corrupt. There's nothing that's corrupt about us, even though the enemy would come in and to make us think so. And then to treat us like that, and then to treat each other this way. But thank God, thank God, we see here very, very clearly in these scriptures, he, he wouldn't be corrupt, his physical body, it would not be corrupt. And why? Because you know why? And this is what God's doing with us right now, with his love and the light of his scriptures. He is over all. Did you know that? He's over everything, every situation, every circumstance, every doubt, every fear, every single thing. He's over it. He's over all. And he's, got, he's guarding and he's guiding us. He's interceding for us in Romans 8 and verse 34. He's interceding for us in Hebrews 7, verse 25, and Hebrews 9, and verse 24. We have the, the spirit of promise who's now in us in John 14, 16, and 17. He dwells in us, and he takes, he takes everything that we can't even articulate in words and brings it to the Father. In Romans 8, and verse 26, we have two comforters. Two comforters. But the enemy, the enemy, through these men right here, and through a lie, were at work to make even more secure his coming triumph. Did you know that? Still trying to cover it up through a lie. The enemy still today is doing that to God's people. To those that are in Christ. To those that, of course, aren't born again. That he's just a dead. He was just a man. His death is no different than anybody else, even if he was real. This historic Christ which as far as history has, has proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt more than any other human being. But still today, still today, through fear, through fear, the word might be alive for someone else, but for me, it's dead. It's dead. Through fear, through sight. And thank God in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, dependence in the light of the scriptures, which brings us into a love life that nothing can touch. Thank God for that. And we don't walk by, by sight or by fear or by doubt or by worry. But God is over all and he's guiding us. But the enemy is right there. He's still trying to convince us through a lie. He still doesn't want you and I to function in the triumph in the victory that's ours in Christ in Romans 8, 37 and 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. Well, did his disciples come and steal the body away? 
Is he not risen? Is he not risen? Does the enemy come in? Is, is, yes, you're born again. But is you, is God, is Christ risen for you in this particular circumstance or situation? This battle, you know, some of the battles that we have, even the people that are closest to us and that we love and they love us, and, but in their struggles, they can, they can be that that would battle us to try to convince us to not go forward in the obedience of what we know to do from Christ. And when we do that, submit to him, we protect ourselves and even, the, even that particular one that's closest to us. And there is going to be adversity. There's going to be adversity. But that's not the, that's not the proof that God is against us. It's the proof that he's for us. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9 brings it out. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 brings it out. All that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Will. But did they? No. No. Not at all. Not at all. No, they didn't. But through fear, through fear, this is what the enemy does. This is what he was trying here and still what he does today to believers. And we're going to get into that, I believe, and I'm going to trust God for it because it's, a, it's an incredible, deep and overwhelming subject that's just above us, any of us, but God can bring it to us when we humble ourselves and we come and we're intreatable and ready to be taught and prepared uh, to do so. The fear comes in to bring us to bring in an imagination. There's an imagination, fear. Is it based on truth? Is it based on the love of God? No, it's an imagination. And those imaginations are that that the enemy uses to come against the spoken, finished word of God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he brings in these imaginations to go against the word so that we forget that word that is so true and immovable and immutable. We forget it, and what do we function in when we do? It's fear. We function in fear because we have this false image. Did we know that all these imaginations come from the father of all lies? He's the father of all false images. <laughs> John 8 verse 44, yes. And that's what he has. Because he doesn't want us to function experientially in the triumph. And it's a final triumph that's ours in Christ. Everything's done about us. Did Jesus teach his disciples all through the Synoptic Gospels and in the book of John that he would rise again from the dead? Was it true? But how many voices come against us in 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 11, and none of them are without significations. None of them without a purpose. But yet, how many vain efforts of these men that were going against Christ through lies and buying people off like the enemy still does. He wants to buy us off. You know, he wants to buy constantly people off from the truth, that you need this particular thing, and he knows all it's going to do is activate the lusts that are in us, the lusts that are in the flesh, and because he knows that it'll never be satisfied, and then he can constantly condemn us and keep us in a place of bondage. Those attachments, those attachments that we think we can't do 
without, which is just an imagination. It's just based upon a lie because we forgot the words, but thank God he's faithful. And in Isaiah 30, verse 18, he's waiting to be gracious. But could any of their false lying efforts avert, do away with the consequences of what Christ had finished? They could only try and cover it because he was risen. And the enemy can only try and cover us with fear and imaginations and lies. That's his wiles in Ephesians 6, 11, his methodia. His power has been dealt with in Hebrews 2, 9 to 18. His power has been done away with in Hebrews 9, verse 14 and 15. They've been done away with. The only thing he has to go against us is the lie, which is an imagination. He tries to mix some of it. And that's what he was trying. It started right in the garden in Genesis, the third chapter. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, the responder, and we in the type are responders. What do we, in, what do we respond to? What is the initiation? Is it truth or is it a lie? He said to the woman, yea, have God said? You know what he does? He wants to mix a little bit of truth. But a little leaven does what? A little lie does what? That's what it does. So he gets, he gets us to start questioning. Tries to get us to be a skeptic. Can't know anything. You can't really know any truth. You can't really know. And if you can't really know it, you can't really function in this. Come on, don't you see that? And then you need, then he causes us to be superstitious. Can't trust anybody. Can't, tr can't trust anybody. No, the issue is not that you can't trust anybody. It's that you don't trust God for the anybody. That's it. There's no suspicion in love. There's no suspicion in God. None whatsoever. So he gets her to question her. A little bit of truth. He's using, he's using a tiny bit of truth to cover up what? A lie. Gets her in a conversation. He says, you know... Uh, are you not supposed to eat of the tree of the garden? Are you you're not supposed to, to eat of every tree? Getting into question. You're not supposed to do... You mean to tell me you're not supposed to do everything? You mean to tell me you're supposed to be obedient in every single thing? You think that's possible? You think it's, po it's not possible outside submission and faith dependence. But w won't you do that? Questions right away. The lie, the question, the imagination, the fear something. I'm going to miss something. If I don't do this thing, even though I know I shouldn't do it. The woman said unto the serpent, she got into a conversation with him. She left the truth. She forgot the truth. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you will not eat of it. Now she's adding to it. Neither will you touch it, lest you die. And you know what the serpent said? He said unto the woman, what? You will not die. You can do this thing. It's okay. God will give you grace to live in sin in Romans 6, 1 and, and Romans 6, 15 and in Romans 3, verse 8. Should I do evil that good may abound? No, you will not die. For God does know. Now he's interpreting God. How do we interpret God apart from the truth about who we are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? It's based upon a lie. We become self-interpreters in 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. Self-interpreters of the, of the word of God through a lie through some form of lust and, and submission to the enemy through a lie. Well, well, you won't die. For God knows that in the day 
that you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you will be as gods. You'll be just like gods and you'll be able to determine good and evil apart from him. You, can, you and I can determine good and evil in disobedience. Sure, we can. We, we can determine that, right? Every single thought. No wonder it says to bring every single thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, and Ephesians 6, verse 12. We're not doing that. Okay? Even in our conversations with each other, who is initiating to us and who are we responding to? Even in marriage, this is why husbands need to take headship because the wives, our wives, and any of us can get deceived, but they can get deceived so easy. Don't go forward. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. Why do you always have to do everything? Why is it you? Why is it you? Very interesting. Headship. Boy, we need to be godly heads. And when the woman saw... That the tree was good for food and that it was, what, pleasant to the eyes. You know where the word pleasant here? It's very interesting. It speaks of a desire. You know the enemy through his lies gives us false images and false desires. That's why it says in Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord. Result, he will give you the desires of your heart. Because outside of him, submission to him, what other desires that we function in? They're brought out very clearly here in Genesis 3 and verse 6. And 1 John 2 and verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's why it's so necessary for husbands to take loving headship in the home and to continue to go forward in what God has called them to do, no matter what things look like by sight, and not to allow the sight or the lie of sight through fear and through the enemy to dictate to us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Who should dictate to us? Who is the head of every man? Christ. Is the woman the head? No. As much as we may love them, no. And any of us, any of us can get deceived in a heartbeat. Any of us. That's why headship is so very, very necessary. And uh, that we need to function in love and not the lie of sentimentality. Sentimentality is a lie. It's not the love of God. There's no truth in sentimentality. There's no truth in submitting outside of God's order. There's no love there. There's no light there. There's no scriptures that would ever tell us to do so. We need to continue to go forward because the enemy knows not only what he has for the husband, but how the wife will be benefited by that. Now, so the enemy's still at work trying to say, still at work. No. Trying to convince us. You know, sometimes he wants to convince us. Even those we love and we're all susceptible to failure. Those that are closest to us. Those that are closest to us. To function in something that's less than the truth. Well, imaginations. Imaginations. Oh boy, imaginations. You know, the image through fear through forgetting the word of God, for, for forgetting that we already have the final triumph and it's being worked out in our lives right now, a plan that was before the ages. Before the ages, in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and, and in Jeremiah 31, and verse 3, far, far beyond, before, long before, the plan was settled for us. Will we obey? And can we, without the light of the scriptures, without God's counsel, no, and if we don't function in love, what do we function in? Fear. Fear. Don't listen to the voice that says you don't when you know what the truth is. 
when you know it. And don't let anyone other than the truth convince you. The truth will be the power of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 13, and 14. He's going to guide you into all truth. Who's our guide? Okay, so the Holy Spirit will take the things of Christ and guide us into the truth. If it's not the truth, what is it? It's a lie. It's a false imagination. It's, he's getting us to convince us through this lie to forget, to do away with the truth. The fact of the matter is, and how vain was the enemy's plan to keep the lie? No, he's risen. He's risen. You read Acts 17 and verse 31. Two reasons why there's the resurrection. There's none for us. There won't be judgment. We've risen far above it. And there is coming judgment. Coming judgment. So what happens then when fear has finally its fascination? We're going to get into that in Galatians, the third chapter, starting at verse one in the future. But when we forget through the lie, through the imagination, fear has its fascination. It fascinates us. And what does it do? It compels you and I you and I, as those that sub are submitted to the lie, to the imagination, to follow to the end that very thing that they're dreading. <laughs> God. And to know and face the worst that can come in that imagination, that thought. That's what he has for us, fear. I want you to follow it through. Think it through. Look at it. Look at the, look at the worst that's going to come to you. Look at it by sight, based upon an imagination. <laughs> the contradictory lies in, of the enemy, that thought force that comes in to, to cause us to function in a lie and an imagination. <laughs> and, and what? To continue on, to continue in the fraud and the illusion that it's impossible and it's certain to, to not trust God because of these fears. Again, this is why headship in the home is so extremely important for us as Christians and, in our, and especially to those that have a specific call. The enemy's going to come against it. He's going to come against it. There's no question about it. But the only hope that is available for you and I is the hope that Christ has finished. He's finished it. He has finished every, sing, every single thing about us. Yes, yes. He has. And when he can cause us to live in the imagination, the fear based upon a lie, that super, we begin to be superstitious about everything. Can't trust anything or anybody in any way because fear and superstition, they go together. They're just you're suspect about everybody. How a person looked, what they, what they might have said, Very amazing, very incredible when we consider it. But as we go forward in this, what we can see is Satan wants to capture us. And he does so by a will that is not submitted in proper headship. Okay? When I don't speak truth or when anybody doesn't speak truth, a Christian, when they do not speak truth, what do we speak? Doubt, fear imaginations, you don't have to do this thing constantly. Why does it always have to be you? Did you ever hear that? 
Has anyone ever heard that? Why does it always have to be you that does everything? Let me ask you this. What is it that's in us that we think we're doing apart from Christ that isn't his finished work? Tell me, when we even think about where we are right now, let's look back in our past without condemnation and accusation and see how far and see who it was that even brought us to this particular place. Don't buy the lies. Husbands, don't buy the lies. Pastors, don't buy the lies. Christians, don't buy the lies. Women, women. If you don't have proper headship, even as a Christian wife, in proper headship in your husband, you don't have to re, re, uh, reject or react. You just submit to Christ. And then your submission to Christ is your head. And he has to bypass the husband in his faithfulness. Because even when we abide not faithful, he abides faithful. In 2 Timothy 2.13, he won't deny himself. And then the husbands can trust, can trust God for the wife and keep loving. And that doesn't mean giving in. <laughs> loving, loving them doesn't mean giving in to their desires. And if their desire is not a proper desire based upon the love of God with the light of the scriptures determining what it is, is that desire a true desire? Or is it just something that the enemy can use to attach and block functioning and growing in the truth in Second Peter 3? In verse 18. Well, well, we're going to close it here, but there is no question about this reality, none whatsoever. That's what he tries to do to us. Hidden, hidden within that desire that's not of God. Remember, Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. That keeps out the lying desires because hidden in that desire that's not of Christ is a lie. It's an imagination. It's a fear. And can only be met. The enemy will meet desires that are outside of Christ for us through the lust of the flesh. We said it in Genesis 3 and verse 6 and 1 John 2 and verse 16. And will they ever be fulfilled? Is lust insatiable? Will it ever be fulfilled? Don't buy the lie. It's over for you. It's over for you. Us older folks, listen, us older folks, and I know this for a fact. I have the enemy coming in. It's over for you. It's over for you. Well, no, it's not, liar. Psalm 92 and verse 14, they will bring forth fruit in their old age because in Hosea 14 and verse 8, their fruit is from me and will bring forth fruit. And he's faithful. And it's not over for you. And you don't have to just wait to go to heaven because it's over. It's not over. You have a portion. You have a portion as an older person, having gone through things. You have a portion that younger people deeply need. You're a joint that supplies in a local assembly. It's not over for you. Your dreams aren't in a dead, in a tomb where that it's empty. Everything empty about you until you go to heaven is a lie. It's a lie. Don't settle for it. So he gets Christians to settle so much for uh, Everything else is over for me here. Can't wait to go to heaven. Well, we do look for him. His appearing in Titus 2, 11 through 13. And it teaches this. Grace teaches us to deny all ungodliness, the lies, the false images, the fears. Fear. Fear has torment. It does. And 1 John 4 and verse 18, Colossus, torture, punishment. Oh, how he loves to torture us. Even by the lie that if I do this 
wicked thing that somehow I'll, I'll be fulfilled. Somehow I'll be fulfilled outside of obedience, outside of submitting to Christ. And when I submit my will to him, his love, the love that he is for me, he lights me up with the truth. And because with you, O oh God, is the fountain of life. With you, Lord. And in your light, in your light, Father, we will see light. Light. Not the angel of light, who's an angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And he has his ministers in eleven fifteen. It's one thing I don't want to be anymore for him is a minister of his who doubts. Even when we fail, the enemy, even when we fail, I can tell how many times I've failed. And the enemy has said, it's over for you. Yeah, you're going to heaven, but it's over for you right here. Well, how about Romans 14, 22? Happy is that man, the man in Christ, the woman in Christ, that condemns not himself. And the thing that he allows and God will deal with it and lovingly chasten us. And that's what we understood about chastisement. That's the first step of grace. <laughs> and if it's grace, do we deserve it? No, but it's love. It's his love that's chastening us. And if it's love, he chastens us to not function in what? An imagination of fear. A lie. A lie. That it's over. It's over. He's the father of all lies. False images. Function in a false image. Yeah, I have to, yeah, I, to be what God has already made me to be in my experience, I have to go to heaven. Really? No, you have, you, your image is Christ. We have that image already and it's finished. And he's working it out in us. He's working it out in us. And we're not going to live. I don't want to live. I don't want to be his minister to doubt and he that doubts in Romans 14, 23 is damned if he eat because he eats not of faith. Dependence. Whatsoever is not of faith is what? Sin. What's sin based on? A lie. A false image. A fear. He got Eve to believe a lie because she got into a conversation with him. And in that conversation, he inculcated in her fear. You can't trust God. Do you ever hear that? Husbands, you ever hear you can't trust God? You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why is it always you? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Well, let's think about it. Where are we right now? How are we functioning? What's our life like? What was it like before? What was it like before? Well, the enemy, and we will close with this, and this is why we have the teaching of the word. We have the teaching of the word for these reasons. And this is why we come. Why do you have to? You have to come all the time. You ever hear that from the enemy? You know where that's coming from, right? You know that where that's coming from, right? You have to come all the time. You have to do. Is it? You have to do everything. Again, what makes us think we're doing anything? That's the lie that we can do anything apart from submission and obedience. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 23 says, But foolish and unlearned questions, what? Avoid them because they're based on a lie. Should she have avoided them in Genesis 3, 1 to 6? Yeah. Is the enemy subtle? Listen, I, listen, outside of constant dependence, what makes me think or any of us think that we can take the word of God and, and, and have it without complete, constant obedience in Him.
What makes any of us think that I'm a match for this supernatural, evil, evil enemy? What makes us think that we're a match? We're not. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid. What? Knowing that they do gender what? Strife. You got strife in the home? The strife in a relationship? Take headship. Loving headship, but take it. Take it. For first, when you do so, you're doing it not just for her. You're doing it for yourself, but you're laying your life down by not, not allowing it. Foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strife. But the servant, the worshiper, <laughs> who do we worship? The servant of the Lord must not what? Strive, but be gentle. Is there any gentleness and meekness and lowliness without a yoke? In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, there's different yokes. There's only two yokes that we can take. One's based upon the truth, the other's a lie. Read Galatians chapter 5. Those first four verses. We can take the yoke of bondage. Fulfilling lusts. Living for time on the earth. Yeah. We don't have time for that foolishness anymore. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but separate it, but be gentle unto all. Right? Apt, highly skillful to teach. Where should the teaching start? Husbands, where should the teaching start? Starts with the headship of of uh, the husband. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. You see God's order? It goes right back to his order. It brings us back to a secure, proper place of safety and security. And so here we see this again as we close. We apt to teach, highly skillful, patient, forbearing, or putting up with so much, forbearing. If you want to understand forbearing, look it up and then read the first, uh, start in 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at the first verse all the way down through. We're in a spiritual warfare. We're not settling down in it. We're going and we're passing through it on our way with our eyes on him in Hebrews 12 too, looking away from all that would distract. Don't listen to the lie. The woman got the lie from Satan, and she offered it to her head. And he took it. Did it destroy both? But thank God we have a promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15. For us, it's accomplished. Christ on Calvary, finishing the work in John 19, 30. But be patient in meekness, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. When a husband functions outside of the obedience of God's order, what is he functioning in? Is the enemy opposing him? And if he can oppose the husband, will he oppose the wife? And it doesn't even matter if it's coming from her. If it is, it's wrong order. <laughs> hmm. Well, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them repentance. Who does he give repentance to? James 4, 6, humble yourself. God resists the proud, but he gives greater grace to the humble. Uh, to those that he's humbled. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, his time. Gosh, we've waited so long. Yeah. Ah, ah, it seems like it's dead. That oppose themselves of God peradventure will give them a change of mind and about face to actually acknowledge the truth. 
and not live in a lie. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, result lean not to your own understanding. My only understanding is based upon, if it's not love, what's it based upon? Fear. If it's not based upon truth, what's it based upon? A lie. It's, a, it's an imagination. It's a false image. It's an illusion. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's trapped by the enemy in Proverbs 29 and verse 25. Oh, give them a, an about face to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover. They may recover. They may awake. That's what it says. Wake up. Wake themselves out of that snare. Again, that's Proverbs 29, 25. Because what is it? The fear of man is a what? It's a snare. It's just, it came through man, but where did it come from? Father of all lies. That they may recover. They wake themselves up out of the snare of the devil, who are what? Taken alive by him, captive at his will. For my will isn't submitted to God through truth, through the word, through constant obedience, through not listening to the lies, the accuser. The accuser. You know, when you hear this, you don't have to do this, you don't have to do this, why is this you, why is it? I'm telling you, that's just the enemy accusing you because you're being obedient. In Revelations 12 and verse 10, who does he accuse? Those that function in the obedience of Christ and the submission of his will and watch his plan. It takes time. It takes time for God to do things. Read Daniel 10, 1 through 13, even one prayer about a prayer. And it was about a vision. The vision was yet. It was finished, but it was yet for a specific time. Is anything too hard for God? In Genesis 18, verse 14, no, but it will return unto you at God's set time. The eternal mind of God worked out in time. The set time. And Sarah, you know, you will have a son. You don't have to believe a lie and then try and do something and convince your husband, Abraham, that he needs to get into a relationship that isn't right. Husbands, let Christ be your head. Don't allow anyone, those that are closest to you, to get into a relationship you have no business being in. And that starts with the enemy. Thank God we have the light of the Scriptures. Thank God he knows the counsel that we need very precisely. Thank God for his love for us. He so loves us. So loves us. He's not given us the spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1.7. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. It's not over. It's not over. Stop buying the lie. I don't care what the health is. It's not over. You breathing? You're still here? You've got a purpose. God has a purpose for you and me. And it's eternal. And thank you, Lord, for that. He's not giving us the spirit of fear. It's fear is a spirit. <laughs> Listen to it. Try the spirits in 1 John 4, 1, whether they're of God or not. Everyone that confesses Christ, yeah, he's true, I can trust him, is of God. Everyone that doesn't confess him is what? It's based upon a lie. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. Christ is our power in 1 Corinthians 1, 24. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. So strong, his love, and a well-disciplined mind to keep out all confusion. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, because he does it in order, the order of the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 14.40, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16. So, Father, thank you for your love this morning, for taking the time to counsel us. 
<laughs> We're not giving you our time. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us in time, your time, to give us your counsel and your thoughts. And thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.